This is the Limitless Conversation Podcast with Joseph Jones and Matt LaCaz. Tonight's episode, we're going to talk NFL Draft. We're going to come back around and talk a little bit about golf and finish up with wrestling, WWE. So, Joe, let's let's get into some sports. You know I'm always excited to talk sports, so let's let's jump right in. No doubt, Matt. Ecstatic about this episode. Always look forward to our sports specials. The 2020 NFL Draft has come and gone, Matt. took place from Thursday through Saturday. We're recording this episode on Monday night, April 27th. In my opinion, the draft was largely a ratings bonanza because people are so starved for sports. You see some records broken for most uh, viewership with the NFL Draft. And honestly, I felt that the uh, virtual aspect was quite the success. I loved seeing the players and coaches and front office executives in their homes, in their own element, watching them react and reminding myself that these are normal, normal people. And so I'll be interested to see in years to come if they're able to reserve some of that space to see those more candid reactions compared to putting all of the players, all of the prospects in that public setting where they're under the light. So it will be interesting to see how that's handled going forward. But the question, Matt, I have for you as we kick off here with this discussion, what team won the 2020 NFL draft? Yeah, let me, let me start with saying that, you know, it's the first time I actually did not watch the NFL draft. I just watched the recap of everything which is ironic because, as you alluded to, Joe, it had just a stellar turnout, right? I, I think the virtual draft was a hit. I don't think we'll see it again, but I do think for what it was, it was a ratings bonanza, like you said. So I tell you what, I'm going to tell you the team I think won, quote-unquote, the NFL draft. I know there's a bunch of good drafts out there or a bunch of teams that did a good job with their draft, but I'm actually going to tell you who I think lost the NFL draft. Right. So I'm going to start with Buffalo. Buffalo, in my opinion, won the 2020 draft. And here's why. They picked up the number one defensive tackle to go with Ed Oliver from last year. Right. They followed that up with a running back to complement Devin Singletary and will ultimately replace Frank Gore, who's now basically aged out of the NFL. He's 35, 36 years old. They picked up a wide receiver, which was the area they needed the most. And then at the end of the draft, they come and get Jake Fromm, who I think is one of the most underrated QBs in this year's draft, was getting no press coverage. So you think about that. You bolstered your defense. You got you two new weapons on offense. And now your quarterback room is uh, Josh Allen and it's Jake Fromm, two superstar young quarterbacks. So I think Buffalo won the draft. Very quickly, who do I think lost it? I think the Chargers lost a draft with Justin Herbert and the Packers with Jordan Love. I think Herbert was drafted way too high, and Jordan Love was actually a second or third round pick that somehow was taken at the top of the first round. That is unbelievable pressure to sit behind Aaron Rodgers. And then for the Chargers and Justin Herbert, is he the man that can actually move the Chargers forward and replace Phillip Rivers. He played in the Pac-12. I mean, let's be honest. He has not seen the caliber of football as some of these other quarterbacks. 
Here's what I would say. I'll start by um, talking about some of the points you brought up with the Chargers and with the um, what was the other team? The Packers. I think that the Chargers took Herbert um, as a player who, in my opinion, I don't necessarily see him becoming a superstar. I will be surprised if that happens. However, I do see him as a player who is pretty good and can be a starter for a long time in the NFL. Whether that is worth the number six pick overall, probably not. But I kind of look at him as the um, low-risk pick compared to a player like Tua, where you feel like if he's healthy, the sky is the limit, and he could be a perennial pro bowler. But with the um, Chargers, I would have um, preferred them to sign somebody like Cam Newton and just roll the dice and see what they can accomplish um, this season with a very talented roster. They're kind of going to be forced to uh, go back to square one with the rookie quarterback. So we'll see how that shakes up. With the Packers, though, I think that they're my number one loser because, once again, they don't get any skill position players for Aaron Rodgers. And number two, they've created turmoil and um, controversy surrounding the entire season because Aaron Rodgers is going to resent, already resents uh, them drafting his replacement so soon, the way that they did it. I, I just think that that's a relationship that will never be repaired and wouldn't surprise me if he's somewhere else in 2021 like Tom Brady. But all that being said, that long segue, as far as the teams that I think won the draft, Matt, I'm looking at uh, the Cincinnati Bengals and I'm looking at uh, the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I say the Bengals because they get the headliners with uh, Burrow and also with the underrated pick of T. Higgins, um, the wide receiver from Clemson, and very ironic that they were opponents in the national championship game and now will be teammates. I don't know how good Joe Burrow will be, but I consider them a winner because that suddenly makes the Bengals relevant again. Jersey sales are going to be through the roof. That franchise was starved for some excitement, and they have that. Will that equate to playoff success? We shall see how Burrow develops. But I think that from a revenue standpoint, an exciting excitement and galvanizing a, fran, uh, a franchise, this was a must for the Bengals, and they definitely accomplished, accomplished that. But my winner, other than the Bengals, is the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I look at two picks in particular, getting linebacker Patrick Queen from LSU. He's been compared to a young Ray Lewis, I think that bolsters that defense and really fills the only glaring weakness for what was the best team last year in the NFL in the regular season. And then also being able to steal uh, running back J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State. That is huge. I mean, that's great insurance with Mark Ingram in your backfield. Dobbins had a brilliant uh, career at Ohio State. Yeah, man, there, there's so much to unpack on, on this question, Joe. But I know we can't stay here all night, but I do want to run through a bunch of points you made. And forgive me if I miss any. So, okay, I agree with you on Cincinnati. I think when you look at them on paper, there's actually a beautiful start there, right? Because I, I don't know how good Joe Burrow is going to be. 
The evidence in college says there's a lot of potential there. He has T. Higgins on one side, A.J. Green on the other, and he has Joe Mixon in the backfield. If that offensive line can play football, their defense is fairly solid. There is a reason to think that Cincinnati really did well in this draft. Very quickly, I think you're spot on when it comes to both the Vikings and the Ravens having great drafts just on sheer talent that they drafted. I mean, they had a ton of picks, both on like almost eight to ten picks, I want to say. And both teams hit uh, every part of their team that, that they needed help, right? I mean, you look at the Ravens and think that they add Dobbins behind Mark Ingram, right? That's insane. They add Queen at linebacker. The Ravens were arguably a top five, if not top four team. They were the number one team in football up until the playoffs, right? I mean, to add that talent to a team that's already that good is insane. I'm going to leave that there. What I do want to bring up is two names we haven't discussed, and then I'm going to come back around to where you started. I think you have to talk about who the Colts picked up in Jacob Eason late in the draft. I think is very interesting, right? You have Phillip Rivers that's going to take over, Jacoby Brissett in the quarterback room, and now you take this young guy who did really well in Washington and you give him all that experience to just soak up. Dallas did really well for Dak when they brought in CeeDee Lamb. That was an excellent pick at the middle of the first round, and I think that shows you that they will pay Dak. I think I texted you at that point to say, well, we know what the answer is on Dak Prescott. They're going to pay him if they're going to use a number one pick for a wide receiver. Without a doubt. What's that? Uh, yeah, without a doubt. I agree. Yeah. So there you go. Now I want to come back to the Chargers. Okay. And, and I think you nailed it. Okay. You need Cam Newton in at the Los Angeles Chargers, right? Their backup is Tyrod Taylor. You bring in Cam Newton. You're going to start Tyrod Taylor to begin with if you don't have Cam Newton. So basically, you would have two quarterbacks that run the same exact kind of offense, which means if one gets hurt, the other comes in seamlessly, right? Um, kind of the parallel there is Lamar Jackson in the Ravens and then Robert Griffin the third, right? So then why go get Justin Herbert, who is, you know, a totally different style of quarterback and Tyrod Taylor is still a young guy. If you bring in Cam Newton, he's also a relatively young guy. So I don't like that. And then finally, just to bring back to the, the Packers, I mean, I don't understand the Jordan Love pick. Aaron Rodgers is basically in the middle to later stages of his career, plenty of time left. So at best, Jordan Love is going to sit on the bench for five to eight more years. So you can't even advertise how good he is to turn around and trade him later. He's literally just going to sit there. So really bad pick. Green Bay Packers need weapons, and they failed to get Aaron Rodgers' weapons again. But they did, Matt. And another thing about that is that Green Bay was in the NFC Championship game last year. They won 13 games. I feel like when a team's in the Final Four of the NFL, they should be drafting – with the mindset that we're probably one or two players away from winning the whole thing and address a need like wide receiver to give Devontae Adams another guy, you know, so he can, doesn't have to shoulder all the load as the, the top receiver. But the move that the Packers made, it almost seemed like a team that was desperate for a total rebuild by, you know, reaching for a quarterback that's kind of 
the one getting the hype in this draft. You know, every year there's always that quarterback that comes out of nowhere that nobody really heard of in college and suddenly they're getting the hype. Like I remember Blaine Gabbert is kind of the classic example of this back in 2011 out of Missouri. Suddenly he was a top 10, top 15 pick. That didn't work out very well. And I kind of feel the same about Jordan Love. We'll see how that goes. Um, But real quick, I did want to say my last uh, thought on the draft overall, talking about the winners, you brought up a really good point about the Colts. Loved what they did with Jonathan Taylor. You know, I was talking about J.K. Dobbins and how good he was at Ohio State. Jonathan Taylor was 6,000 yards in three seasons at Wisconsin. He was unbelievable. And then you add Michael Pittman Jr., um, who you can pair with uh, T.Y. Hilton out of uh, Southern Cal, big physical receiver. The Colts have really put um, Phillip Rivers in a great situation to win a lot of games this year. You look at that division right now with the Texans trading Hopkins, with the Jaguars kind of, you know, a little bit iffy with Minshew. The Colts look like the heavy favorites in that division. Right, and then you you take that and you marry that to the fact that the Colts were not terrible last year, right? I mean, they had no offensive weapons. I think T.Y. Hilton spent half the year uh, injured. And so, you know, I think they were an at-best average team. So, I mean, you bring in a few players, you bring in a a better quarterback in Phillip Rivers, all of a sudden the Colts are playoff potential Especially when you talk about, you know, other teams such as the Texans, which has always been a thorn in their side, losing their superstar. Uh, Lastly, before we move on, Joe, I just want to touch back on the Packers. I can't tell you how much I hate what they did. I mean, you bring in a coach who is known for offense and generating offense. Go get Aaron Rodgers some weapons, right? I mean, that's what that coach is supposed to do. Then, if you look at it on this kind of spectrum, like – Aaron Rodgers is more of a Joe Flacco and a Ben Roethlisberger when it comes to backups. He doesn't really want to help you develop, right? Drew Brees wants to groom the next quarterback. He's working with Teddy Bridgewater, working with Hill. I mean, uh, teaching him all the things that he knows. Well, that's not exactly who Aaron Rodgers is. And so I think all in all, that was a bad fit for the Packers. And I think they were going for the hot commodity at the time, unless they're going to use Aaron Rodgers' trade bait. I mean, I guess we don't know. Let's move away from the draft, and let's talk about our home team down here, the New Orleans Saints. What ESPN was running is that they were looking at Jameis Winston. So what do you take from that, Joe? I think that a lot of people are going to view this as a mistake for the Saints to consider signing Winston. And I definitely understand the off the field concerns going back to his days at Florida State six or seven years ago. I understand the turnovers had been uh, really an issue with uh, 30 plus interceptions last year. Um, He has the talent. I mean, that's undeniable. Can he get past some of these personal issues and put it together and be a consistent player in this league? I mean, I'll preface, you know, as a Saints fan, maybe I'm looking at this with an optimistic outlook, but I personally think that this is a really good situation and maybe the only situation for Jameis Winston in the NFL. I think that there is something unique 
about the locker room environment with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. As you referenced, Brees is a great mentor. You've seen how they rejuvenated Teddy Bridgewater's career after he was coming off uh, the knee injuries with uh, the Vikings and resurrected his career, now ended up with a, a lofty contract and a new starting job. And so I kind of see this as an opportunity for Jameis Winston to grow and develop and to learn from some of the best offensive minds in the history of the game and then springboard that towards the chance at a starting job in 2021. I see this probably as just a one-year gig. I still think the Saints would favor Taysom Hill as their long-term starter, but this really helps both sides because Winston can grow in 2020. And then secondly, the Saints needed a backup quarterback in place of Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah, so look, I'm going to give you a hot take right here, right? Jameis Winston will become the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. He is the future of the New Orleans Saints. So I think I'm just going to stay short on this to say I agree with everything you've said. I think this is the perfect situation for Jameis Winston to grow and learn. Where we differ is I think he probably will sign a one-year contract this year, right, because it's short notice. But I think this is the heir apparent to Drew Brees, and here's why. Drew Brees is a run-and-gun quarterback. He wants to throw. Him and Sean Payton want to throw for 400, 500 yards and eight touchdowns a game if they can, right? Well, that's exactly who Jameis Winston is. He can throw in a country mile. His problem is decision-making, which, ironically, Drew Brees struggles with that as well. Now, where they differ is that Drew Brees is next-level accurate that Jameis Winston can't even sniff. But maybe what Drew Brees can do is teach him that accuracy and teach him how to make better decisions with the ball. So what I'm going to say is I don't understand why they signed Taysom Hill for a long-term contract. I see he's a gimmicky player. I don't see him as a true quarterback. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jameis Winston will be the heir apparent to Drew well, I mean, that's definitely a headlining, uh, you know, proclamation, Matt, and that would be fascinating, you know, if they were to go with him. And then they still may. I mean, that that is kind of the luxury of signing Jameis Winston is that I think that both sides need this marriage um, based on the circumstances. But it also does give the Saints the luxury to evaluate Winston as potentially a successor to Breeze. That's a great point. Um, I will say that. With Breeze at 41 years old, I expect this to be his final season. I really do. Even though the accuracy is still there, he doesn't have the arm strength that he once did seven or eight years ago. Jameis Winston does at 26 years old. So you could see the Saints be able to utilize a lot of plays that Sean Payton's reserved in that playbook the last couple of years and really open things up a little bit more on the deep ball if uh, Winston was the starter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the crazy part is, even though I think Teddy Bridgewater was a serviceable quarterback, Jameis Winston is even a step above him. So how Sean Payton and Drew Brees could come up with ways to use Jameis Winston is just, you know, it's, it's mind boggling, especially with Hill in the background. So let's shift away from the NFL. I think we covered the headlines there. 
Let's talk basketball, right? Specifically, let's talk episode three and four of the last dance about the Chicago Bulls last night. What did we learn, Joe? We learned a lot about Dennis Rodman, and then also we learned something about Phil Jackson. We learned about Dennis Rodman even more about the player that he was and, you know, the off the court things, um, kind of the, you know, the headlines that he would bring for his personality, the way he behaved. Um, you talk, you know, you saw the um, very interesting story about when he requested the vacation and went out to Las Vegas and nobody could find him for over 48 hours. I mean, that was that, that's something how Dennis Rodman, unlike most humans, was able to live with all of these distractions, but still be such um, an effective player when it was time uh, and the lights were bright. I mean, he won, you know, two championships with the Pistons, won three with the Bulls, integral part of both teams during their runs. And going back to the Pistons, we also saw a lot about what the rivalry was like between the Pistons and the Bulls in the late 80s and early 90s and how physical and personal that rivalry was. And I came away with that, Matt, and I want to get your thoughts really on the episode in general, but the last thing I would say right now is I came away kind of surprised that Dennis Rodman was able to mend some of that animosity that he had when he was a member of the Pistons and eventually become a teammate of Jordan and Pippen. Yeah, man, you segue beautiful for me there, Joe, and, and here's why. That animosity you talk about, it's only dealt with in a world with maturity, right? And I think as I watch these episodes of The Last Dance, I, I stop seeing them as Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and realize how mature they were for a team, right? And so what I would ask our listeners is think about current basketball. You got all these players and they're all on social media. He said, she said, uh, Kevin Durant is tweeting from fake aliases. And, you know, they're kind of living in the media, uh, pointing fingers, going and joining their buddies in different teams. That's not what this Bulls team was about. And that is what is being shown to us, whether it was true or whether this is how they wanted to craft it in this docuseries. I'm not sure, but. What you see is maturity, right? And here's what I mean. The first episode, you learn about Michael Jordan. The second episode, you learn about the contract issues that Scottie Pippen was having. Yet, all throughout that, none of the other Bulls said a word about it. They left it on Scottie Pippen's shoulders. When he came back and decided to play, they embraced it. In the third episode, you learn about Dennis Rodman and who Rodman was and the fact that the Chicago Bulls embraced him and the animosity he brought from his past, the character that he was, and at the time it was radical, right? It was all over the place. And they even embraced the fact that he handled himself on the court and he provided the, the necessary statistics they needed to win. And so since he did that, they let him go take trips to Las Vegas to blow off steam. Only a mature team would allow that to happen and trust that everything was going to be okay. In the fourth episode, you learn about Phil Jackson, that he had all these radical, philosophical, Indian-based, uh, spiritual-type uh, philosophies going on. 
and they embraced that. Instead of saying, no, we're not going to do that, that's weird, they took the time to learn who Phil Jackson was. So what I'm learning in this, this series, The Last Dance, is that the difference between the Chicago Bulls and all the other teams right now, the question is always, which one is better? That's not the question we should be asking. What we should be asking is, what is the difference? And the difference is, this team was extremely mature. And I think we're going to see that. I think Steve Kerr played a role. I think Tony Kukoc played a role. Luke Longley. They all had their individual roles, and they were all mature adults. They weren't people encapsulated with social media and all the, the other issues out there in the world. They were, Matt. And um, you look at um, Ron Harper, even. He was a former rival, I believe, of uh, the Bulls playing for the Cavaliers. I believe when Michael Jordan hit that um, iconic shot in game five of the 1989 first round to defeat the Cavaliers. And so you saw you know, players be able to get past their differences and mend those relationships and come forward. And I also found it interesting, you know, you talk about how players engage in social media and things like that. Another thing that has changed, and, and they talked about this last night in the episode, when players lose a playoff series, in today's game, you see a lot of um, handshakes and you see a lot of hugs. Well, maybe you won't after COVID-19, but you used to. And there's almost like this friendship within the league with a lot of the rival players. And we saw that with the Celtics and Pistons and the Pistons and Bulls, there was so much animosity that they would sometimes walk off the court when they lost games. You didn't see that brotherhood that you do now. And I found that element fascinating. Yeah, I think the physicality was unparalleled. That was the first thing you told us when I brought up this question. You know, I mean, the brutality and the physicality, it was a whole different game than what it is now. Right. I think this docu-series is doing a really good job showing us that. It definitely is. Um, before we transition to any other points, did you have any other impressions of last night's episodes? No, I, you know, the Chicago Bulls are who I thought they were. Um, Michael Jordan is taking shape to be the person I thought that the person he's always been. I do think the footage that we're seeing is kind of unprecedented, right? Like there's a lot of times where, you realize that behind the scenes they were having fun, that it's not all serious. And so I think that is footage that we had never been exposed to. But for the most part, what I'm seeing is exactly what I thought. I was a little stunned by the Rodman stuff last night, um, more so because I lived during that period just like yourself. The picture of Rodman that was painted in the media, it was definitely different than the picture that the footage showed last night in the locker room, they truly embraced Dennis Rodman and they saw him as an equal. Whereas in the media at the time, they really set him apart, right? They made him look immature and selfish, uh, arrogant, and just, you know, the opposite of what the Chicago Bulls wanted. That doesn't seem to be the reality. Yeah, it was definitely fake news at its finest. Um, as we conclude today's episode, great analysis there, Matt, on the Chicago Bulls. I want to real quick do something that we've done on other episodes, and that is play the lightning round where I ask you a couple of questions and you give me a really quick take 
on um, that topic. Let's start with the WNBA. We've been talking about basketball. What is the future, Matt, for the WNBA? Yeah, it's not good. And you know I love the lightning round, so let's do it. It's not good, right? They need equal pay. They're forcing these amazing players like Deanna Tarazi to not play in the WNBA because they pay her 70000 She can play overseas for over a million. Yeah. Next question. What should um, we think about the upcoming uh, Woods-Manning versus Mickelson-Brady golf competition? Yeah, I really want your take on this one, Joe, but, but here's where I'm at. This is who Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson are going to be. They've shown that they can't necessarily play with the young guys. I don't see them going to the senior PGA Tour because of their egos. So this is what it's going to be. It's going to be gimmicky side bets because that draws an audience. Yeah, I'm just looking at you know, drawing the audience. I think giving us something to watch, a spectacle of entertainment on a sports level is profound right now with COVID-19. And Absolutely. Then, and, and they can draw more people just in a format like this uh, than, than the whole senior PGA Tour can. Yeah, without a doubt. Last question, Matt, for you. The WWE released wrestlers from their contract. Is there reason to worry? Yeah, and I want to give two points. You know, I've been wanting to push this topic for a while now, and here's why. WWE released 23 wrestlers. That's not a good sign. Also, that same week, they folded the XFL. Vince McMahon sold $272 million of his own stock and pledged $500 million for that league. So in one week, they, they released wrestlers from their flagship and folded a league that they promised was going to succeed in less than five weeks. Yeah, for sure. A lot going on there. Well, we got to leave it there for this episode. Thank you so much to our listeners. We will see you next time on Limitless Conversation.